Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, what to expect at this year's Peachtree Road Race. Everyone should understand and recognize that the way we are setting the race up this year, there is never going to be more than a small number of thousands of people together at one time. We're spreading everything out throughout those two days. Plus, the South DeKalb YMCA has been closed to regular membership operations since last year due to COVID, and now there are community concerns a facility will not reopen at all. A conversation with Lauren Kuntz, president and CEO of the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. But first, this from our WABE newsroom. A Georgia-Kia manufacturing plant will be the latest automaker to halt production because of a widespread shortage of computer chips. Production is set to stop this Thursday and Friday. Bipartisan legislation is expected to come before the Senate this week to try to prevent the problem in the future. In other news, a Buckhead restaurant is apologizing to former Atlanta Hawks star and basketball Hall of Famer Dominique Wilkins after he says they denied him service. Wilkins tweeted Saturday he was turned away at Le Bibloque in Buckhead. Wilkins says because he's black. The restaurant first responded in a tweet saying they enforce a business casual dress code to fit its culture. Then after a third revised statement... Management later posted an apology for any confusion the dress code might have caused, saying they strive for inclusivity and welcomed a dialogue with Dominique Wilkins. Meanwhile, some folks took to Twitter and posted pictures of white customers dining in the restaurant that were wearing sneakers, baseball caps, and even a sports tank top. And finally, speaking of the Atlanta Hawks, they are one game up on the New York Knicks in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Game two is set for Wednesday. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. There's still time to register for the virtual Peachtree Road Race. In fact, you have until June 7th. Now, registration for the in-person race is all locked up. It's year 52 for the for the annual 10-kilometer race and for 2021. It's planned for two days, Saturday, July 3rd and Sunday, July 4th. Why? Well, let's bring in Track Club Executive Director Rich Kana, and he'll tell me all about it. Rich, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rose. Before we get into this year's Peachtree Road Race, Rich, could you have imagined returning a year later to an in-person race, especially a year ago at this time. It's funny, at this time last year, I was still hoping against hope that we'd be able to have an in-person event 
last year in 2020. So I'm a glasses half full kind of guy. Maybe I, I was the last one to get the memo, uh, but uh, we are super excited about the opportunity to bring it back in person this year. And obviously, Rich, the vaccines being available, but what else did you all consider in putting on an in-person race this year? Yes, is, is the short answer. The, the longer sort of look at this is, In November, as we started to plan out 2021, we prioritized the following. One, getting back to an in-person event and doing this in-person Peachtree experience on the weekend of the 4th of July, in part because we did not want to lose two years in a row from sort of our our years of tradition. A little bit of concern that if if we had two consecutive years with no in-person Peachtree, people might move on to a different routine on the 4th of July. I wanted to make sure we got back to that as soon as possible. You know, Rich, there have been several large participant races that have taken place, not only here in the nation, but around the world. And in some instances, zero reported cases in the two weeks post-race. Now, that was according to a white paper from Dr. Brooke Nichols, an infectious disease epidemiologist. Did you all, did you all consult with other track clubs or other events around the world operators and ask them, hey, how'd it go and what did you do? Yes, we have. There are a handful of major events around the world, uh, like the Boston Marathon, the New York City Marathon, Chicago Marathon, London, uh, and the Peachtree. These are events that are iconic in the endurance sports space. uh, And thankfully we have good relationships uh, with the organizers from each of those cities. The interesting thing is that we're all sort of learning as we go, if you will, um, because if you think you have this figured out, you don't, number one. And number two, every city, every state, every country has had a different approach to how they are handling things on the ground. So while there are things that we can share on our learnings, ultimately, we're driven by the local. Let's talk about this year's road race Uh, Rich, first of all, why two days? So back in November, as we were looking uh, at our plan, uh, we knew that we were going to have to abandon uh, our moniker. Our moniker is the world's largest 10K with 60,000 people. Mm -hmm. We wanted to focus on putting on, on staging the world's safest 10K. And if you're going to do that, you want to create an environment where people have room to move around, even though you're in an outside environment. Uh, So to do that, uh, we thought the best approach would be to spread this out over two days. Number one, on our side, it will allow us to to deliver that a safe experience. But on the participant side, on the volunteer side, we could maybe allay fears about coming together in a very, very large environment in a gathering and lean into the fact uh, that we're everyone spread out. And in 2021, we have the calendar working to our favor. We have a Saturday and a Sunday, July 3rd and July 4th to work with. Let's start with July 3rd, which is that Saturday. What will take place? So we're looking to really do a a peach tree and then do a peach tree the next day. So, Mm -hmm. So while July 4th will deliver broadcast, that flyover, uh, you know, that traditional Peachtree experience, we're going to try to mimic that on the day before July 3rd in a way that is appropriate to the traditions of Peachtree. 
And are you all limiting the number of participants for the in-person race? We are. So I'll give you a little bit of a summary there. So we pushed back our, our registration period uh, later into the spring to, to give people a sense of, uh, of confidence uh, in, in their understanding of what the reality will be on the weekend of July 3rd and July 4th. And we ask people in the registration process to choose July 3rd or July 4th. Uh, and, and we have filled those fields uh, with an amount, a number of participants that we believe we can handle safely. So I think you'll see roughly between 35 and 40,000 people part participating in general over two days. Uh, and everyone should understand and recognize that the way we are setting the race up this year, there is never going to be more than a small number of thousands of people together at one time. We're spreading everything out throughout those two days. Is that going to be difficult? Are you all concerned about the turnaround? Because usually after the race, you know, you have the cleanup, you have all the things that go into delivering results, all of that. You got really less than 24 hours, Rich, to do it all again. And does that put a little bit extra burden on your staff and volunteers? It does. In, a, in any given year, the, the peach tree in its grand scale is an, is an op operational marvel from, you know, from, from 4,000 volunteers uh, to local emergency management agencies, regional support, as well as national and federal support. To do this over two days is requiring a significant commitment, a significant ask of everyone in the community. Mm -hmm. We believe it's worth it. We believe that by putting on the Patriot this 4th of July weekend, we are signaling sort of a return to a new normal for all of Atlanta. Before we get into some of the safety measures and requirements, I wanna talk about the participants. This race has always included walkers and wheelchair participants as well. Are you all limiting the number of participants per group? Are you limiting the overall number? In general, so so we don't discriminate uh, against anyone based on how fast they're moving down the course. So so we we did not segment based on on. So how you won't fast. have all the elite runners running on Saturday. We're gonna we're gonna have the elite invited top American athletes in the foot race on the morning of the fourth, as well as our Shepherd Center elite wheelchair race on on the morning of the fourth. So that'll be sort of that tradition. So we basically looked at this holistically and said, hey, this is a numbers game. This is a numbers and this is a space game. And how do we how do we manage both of those over two days? Those elite runners, you mentioned American elite runners. You usually have a lot of international big names coming in. Will you have that this year? We won't. So, again, in those early days of our planning, we recognize that it was likely that the reality on the ground here in Georgia would be different than the reality in different countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so rather than try to guess what countries you can recruit from based on their positivity and, and, and based on travel regulations, uh, we decided we're going to host a US championship event. So in, in the 50th running of the Peachtree, we ran the fastest, I shouldn't say we, <laughs> the athletes up front and covered the course faster than any athlete ever had. Mm -hmm. In fact, faster than any athlete had ever covered 10 kilometers uh, on 
U.S. soil. Mm -hmm. This year, we're going to focus on crowning a U.S. championship. And Rich, for all the participants, for the in-person, will you require them to be fully vaccinated? So I, I love the way you asked that question, Rose, and sort of very, very clearly articulate that question because it is creating you know, lots of, of uncertainty and challenges for us on our side. Well, now is the time to clear it up. So I, I'm going to try. So the, the short answer is that the, the track club uh, is not looking to identify vaccinated versus non-vaccinated participants on race day or when you're picking up your race number. We're, we're not looking to, to separate everyone. But what we are asking everyone to do uh, is to understand that to put on the safest 10K in the world, we're going to need to do one of two things. Ask you to show that you are vaccinated. And if you are unable or unwilling to show that you're vaccinated to go through a COVID screening process so that we know that everyone who has gotten to the start line is COVID free. And, and there are layers and layers of work involved to pull that off. But the important thing that, that I, I would ask all of your listeners to, to take away is we are encouraging vaccination because it will allow you to move more freely on race day. But we certainly understand uh, that there are those who are uncomfortable getting vaccinated at this time. So Rich, make this clear. So for those who have no issue, they want to say, hey, track club, I am fully vaccinated. They can show proof of that. That's fine for those who are unwilling or what have you, or, or just simply are not vaccinated. Are you going to do the screening the day of, the morning of? Yes, we are. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you a sort of a, a bit of an explanation behind that. So, so think of this like you're going to Disney World and, and you've got a fast pass. If when you pick up your race number, either at the expo, which is before race day, mm -hmm. uh, or on race morning, you show proof of vaccination, uh, you will be given a validation that allows you to more easily move around and more easily get to the start line. And if you are a participant who chooses not to show proof of vaccination or, or you are not vaccinated uh, for any reason, then you go through your COVID screening process when you pick up your race number before race day and again as you are approaching the start line. The screening involves a test. Are you all testing for COVID? We are, but not in the way that everyone is, is accustomed to being tested for COVID these days. So, so we have set up a relationship, uh, a partnership uh, with, a, with a vendor that manages COVID screening dogs, so canines. So think about when you're going to the airport and you're yeah, going- I just heard a story on NPR this morning about this. Yep. So it, I don't know, Rich, what do you think? Are you, I mean, I love dogs, they're great. You're confident in this being effective and the best way to screen or test for COVID? If I did not think it was effective, we would not be investing the amount of time and, and energy and resources into it. So, so we've looked at the double blind studies yeah. uh, and recognize that, that these canines are able to detect COVID uh, and in many cases detect it more accurately than a PCR test. Uh, so as, as you are stepping into the export to the start line, you'll walk past the dog. 
if the dog identifies you as a, a person of interest, then we will screen you. Then we will test you. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Atlanta Track Club Executive Director Rich Kana, and we're talking about this year's Peachtree Road Race, which will take place on two days, as well as all of the COVID-19 precautions and safety measures. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll finish our conversation with Rich Kana about this year's Peachtree Road Race. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott, and I'm in conversation with Atlanta Track Club Executive Director Rich Kanan. And we're talking about this year's Peachtree Road Race. It will be a little bit different, folks. In fact, it's taking place on two days. Rich, I got to ask you, because and I know someone is saying Rose asked this question, because then I'll get an email that says, Rose, I'm glad you asked that question. Can you understand someone saying, well, Rich, why not rely on the science of a COVID test, not to take anything away from our furry friends because we love them and we know that they have done some great work, but why not rely on something that is with an actual rapid COVID test? Now I know that there are some issues about false negatives and false positives and all that, but. I'm glad you asked the question because I'm sure a lot of people are looking for that answer. So uh, as, as we look at, at managing two things, the accuracy of our screening process and the time that it will take for thousands of people to go through that screening process, we landed uh, on this solution with with our canines. And the reality is, if you are asymptomatic uh, and and you are carrying the COVID virus, uh, the rapid tests are not terribly accurate. So our canines, based on the research that we've done, are going to be more accurate than having thousands of people go through the rapid antigen test when they are asymptomatic. Remember a moment ago when I asked you about you all consulting with operators of other races, how did they do it? Did they have canines? Yeah, so we have consulted uh, with uh, some NBA franchises as well as as NASCAR uh, and concert venues. Uh, And again, this is, this is, this is an emerging sort of everyday sort of moving along a learning curve uh, on how they are doing it and how they're doing it at scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and basically we are taking the lessons learned from them uh, so that we can do this effectively. And to do it effectively over a period of hours and period of days, you need a lot of dogs, you need mm-hmm. a lot of handlers, you need a lot of volunteers, and you need a sound operational plan so that you don't create bottlenecks for the participant as they are there mm-hmm. because you do not want to degrade their overall experience. You want them to get to the start line saying, hey, Atlanta Track Club had my back. 
What do you suggest for those folks who will not be vaccinated or do not want to reveal whether or not they have been vaccinated? What do you all suggest in terms of arriving on time to make sure they can get through the screening process with the canines? So we have extended our expo, which is where you pick up your race number, the vast majority of the participants, uh, over to four days from two days. And we will be communicating with all the participants uh, and ask them to, to choose to register for a, a time slot, if you will, so that we have just, a, we know exactly how many people are entering into the Georgia World Congress Center at any given time. So this will be before the race, but this not the on day, the day of the race. Yep. We have four days before the race. So, so if you are not vaccinated, uh, I'm just asking you to, to plan a little bit of extra time and cues uh, so, so that uh, we get the opportunity to screen you uh, and thousands of others of your best friends as you go through the screening process and know that we are doing it not to be difficult, not to make some political statement, but to ensure that you and everybody else around you are safe. Rich, have you all added a COVID-19 liability provision, usually in the waiver, that you all have folks agree to or sign to? We do. And, and, and I'll, I'll take sort of this moment to speak a little bit about, uh, about how we're approaching that. We knew when we launched our registration that we were not 100% sure of what our operational plan would be. So when you register for this year's Peace Tree, you, you click a box and you say, I understand that as a term of my participation this year, I may be required to show proof of vaccination or be screened for COVID. Uh, so, so we wanted to, to, to be upfront as much as possible with everyone as they prepared for this year's Peachtree and think that we've, we've, we've accomplished that. And, and you may be going here, Rose, on this, but there also is a, a mask element to this mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that, that, will, that will be a big part of, of people's race day experience. So they will run with masks? Those who no, they, they will not run with masks. Okay. Uh, but because we are mixing vaccinated and unvaccinated participants at the start line when people are not moving we are asking everyone to err on the side of caution so as you enter into our permitted footprint uh, in buckhead by lennox and phipps mall we're asking you to wear your mask we're requiring you to wear your mask Mm -hmm. until you get to the start line and when you get to the start line you come across the start line you take off your mask and you enjoy peachtree just like you always do And then as you come across the finish line, if you decided to discard your mask or your mask is sweaty, we are attaching to the back of everyone's race number in a little plastic pouch, a new mask. And we're asking you to put on that mask as you are in a footprint and as you are in a a relatively dense environment and or when you're going back on MARTA. Again, to do it as a show of respect for those around you. Have you had any concerns from the city health officials inquiring, hey, track club, is this the best approach that you all can do to put this race on? Have you had concerns? Have you had to have meetings? Have you had to present this plan? 
This is the first large scale event for the city of Atlanta since the pandemic like this. You're right. This, this is the, the first large scale permitted event in the city of Atlanta. Um, but we all know, and we all see that there are stadiums, uh, arenas uh, here in Atlanta Metro and around the country uh, mm-hmm. who have been operating at full scale for a number of weeks or months. Uh, so yeah, but they're all contained in a stadium here. You correct. got running all over the city. Correct. So, so we've got we've got a lot of things going for us. We're, yeah. we're outside. People are moving. There is no science uh, that points to an event like this uh, being a, a, a place or a location uh, that that could lead to super spreader activity. So we've got all of those things moving mm-hmm. and working in our favor. But when we plan this, uh, we we knew again what we didn't know. So we have convened a, a sort of what I'll call sort of a semi-independent COVID advisory group that includes people from the, the, the mayor's office, from, from emergency management agencies, mm-hmm. uh, infectious disease doctors and epi- epidemiologists to look at our protocols and make sure that they feel comfortable with what we are delivering on the weekend of the 4th of July. And Rich, what about race staff and volunteers? Are you requiring them to be or show proof of vaccination? So yes, we made the difficult decision about two months ago to require all of our volunteers to be vaccinated. So we are not requiring participants to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Okay. We are requiring volunteers at this time. And, and the answer is, and the question is why? Number one, because we could not come up with an, with an operational plan that would allow us to screen volunteers because we use volunteers over a six mile geography, uh, number one. And number two, some of our volunteers are working in a dense environment amongst each other and we want to err again on being safe and delivering the world's safest 10K. So we've had a lot of volunteers uh, who have had the peach tree as part of their tradition year in, year out for decades, Mm -hmm. uh, who have made the decision not to get vaccinated. And unfortunately, uh, they're going to be unable to participate this year. Mm -hmm. And Rich, the course itself, for those that are wondering, the course itself is the same ending at Piedmont Park obviously beginning at Lenox, nothing's gonna change there. And so the course will include the infamous Cardiac Hill. That's what it's called, I believe, Cardiac Hill. We still call it Cardiac Hill, there you go. Uh, yes, there, we, we couldn't flat out the, flatten out the hills for you this year. Uh, and I, I will say that the foot, the course remains the same, but the footprint in Piedmont Park will be slightly different. So, so in a normal peach tree gear, we, we have lots of fun activities for people planned and scheduled from, from stages with music and entertainment uh, to our member party in Park Tavern. This year, uh, we're, we're just going to keep people moving. We're going to get them that coveted finisher shirts. We're going to get them their fluids. We're going to get them their snacks. And we're going to ask them to be on their way, go home and, and get ready for their 4th of July uh, barbecue. Yeah, because normally... Participants cross the finish line and, and the folks gathering at that finish area. So you all are limiting the number of folks in the finish area as well? Correct. So, in, and again, in a normal year, 
your your family and your friends can come and meet you in Piedmont Park. So so it it is this year not going to be a place that is open to the public, just for the runners to come in and receive their services, uh, and again get that coveted finisher shirt and then move on. So the point uh, and the, and the approach is to not have thousands of people in Piedmont Park. Uh, we want to basically move them away so that the people behind them can come in safely to the finish line. And finally, Rich, as we wrap up, besides the COVID-19 precautions that we just talked about, what about overall safety and security measures that you all have in place? So every year on July, it's usually July 5th or July 6th, when we do our after action meetings and review, we, we, we meet with a combination of local, state and federal officials. Um, you know, because of COVID, we were a little bit of out of, out of practice uh, in, until, uh, until earlier this year. Um, but I couldn't be more pleased and appreciative uh, of and around the, the city of Atlanta uh, the law enforcement agencies, specifically APD, uh, and the amount of time and effort that they are putting into planning a two-day peach tree this year. So very confident uh, in the security plan uh, that APD, as our lead agency, will bring to the party this year. You told me earlier a while ago you are a the glass is half full type of guy. You feeling pretty good about this year's peach tree road race? I am. I one of our one of our most active members refers to the Peachtree as Atlanta's finest day. Uh, and I can tell you, being at the finish line of Peachtree, it certainly is my most favorite day of the year, seeing all of Atlanta come together in the tradition that is the Peachtree. So I am super excited to bring it back, but also very much looking forward to 2022 when we can bring it back to just that one day traditional peach tree. What's your fastest 10K, your time? Hmm. <laughs> I, I, was, I was not a 10K runner, much, much like you. I, I, I avoided events like that. I, I don't know, I, maybe back in the day, 35, 36 minutes. Now, Rich, I got to ask you about your bio on the Atlanta Track Club website. And it says, I'm going to quote here, Rich has been blessed to travel to and race in more than 30 countries. He's lost the vast majority of these races, including his road race debut where he finished dead last. You keep it honest, don't you, Rich? <laughs> That's the way we roll here at Atlanta Track Club. Rich, I appreciate you taking the time. Lots of good information. I'm glad you were able to clear up a lot of questions that folks have. Atlanta Track Club Executive Director Rich Kanai, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you, the staff, and all the volunteers on those two race days. I'll be out there cheering folks on. Thanks again, Rose. Appreciate the conversation. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. For more than 160 years, the YMCA of Metro Atlanta has provided services beyond a place for recreation. YMCA locations are staples of the communities it serves, and that includes the Softa Cab Family YMCA. But since the pandemic, that location has been through some operational changes, stirring up a range of emotions from longtime members, board members, county commissioners, 
and even sparking a protest, many fearing that the facility's temporary closure signals a permanent closure coming soon. Joining me now to talk more about this issue and what plans are in store for the Soft Cab Family YMCA is Lauren Kuntz, the president and CEO of the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. Lauren, welcome back to the program. Thanks for taking the time. Rose, thank you so much for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Let's begin with this, because when we spoke last time, the Ys were opening within limited services. But now with the new CDC guidelines and vaccinations, uh, give us an update and status on all the YMCA locations. Are you all all open now? So the last year, as you can imagine, has been really interesting. Um, I think when we talked last, um, we went, uh, interestingly enough, on March 10th, 2020, business as usual, within three days, all of our early learning centers and after-school sites were shut down in accordance with the governor's uh, executive order. And then by uh, the 17th of March, 2020, all of our wives were shut down. So it was really interesting to go from business as usual to every single location being shut down in the course of one week. And so we had to ask ourselves two really critical questions. One, how would we create value for members so that we wouldn't lose all of our members, as you know. The second thing we asked ourselves um, was what could the Y uniquely provide based on our core capabilities to help during the pandemic? And we really came back with two ways to do that. The first one was providing childcare for those on the front lines of COVID. And originally it started with those working in hospitals and nursing homes and healthcare centers. And then we expanded it to those working in grocery stores, warehouses, basically anyone who needed childcare who did not have the luxury of working from home and was doing so, so we could all, for the most part, work remotely. And we were able to, by the end of March last year and working with the state and licensing, open up seven of our locations to provide uh, free childcare for uh, those uh, that needed it. And we continued that through the summer um, and then moved that into a different model called Y Campus Connection that ran from August through March. Um, So that was a really critical piece of what we did over that nine months. The other piece that we did that we really is amazing is we, when we closed, we took all of our facilities and turned them all into a massive food distribution network and ended up working with 65 different partners across Metro Atlanta between March, 2020 And December 2020, we served more than 600,000 meals at a YMCA. And so we began to, in various stages, last May and June, start opening up some services, still highly restricted. Uh, We are obviously always in communication with the CDC. We're always watching what the executive orders are. But we've been able to return Uh, in most of our facilities and most of our programs at a reduced capacity. Um, So we're still continuing to see um, people coming back. Not everything's open across our facilities. So are y'all still continuing some of those COVID-19 related services? Are they still available? And if so, how long will you continue to offer those? Well, we are still doing a lot of those. Um, We are continuing to do the food-based work. That has become increasingly important. Um, You know, we have four commercial kitchens because we are a large Head Start provider. So we serve hot breakfast and lunch uh, in normal times to 3,000 children every day. 
So this uh, has really been a silver lining that we've been able to use our facilities to work with partners so they can get their food into communities that they may not have had reach into or a distribution system into. So that work will not abate. We're going to continue to do that. We are continuing, of course, our youth programming and we're, and we're ramping youth programming up. And just for clarity, Lauren, how many YMCA centers do you have? I know you have some of the early childhood centers, but overall, how many locations do you all have? We have 14 early learning centers. We have 18 YMCAs in communities, as you think of, uh, that have community programming. We have two standalone youth and teen centers and two resident camps. And then, of course, um, we run after school in, you know, dozens and dozens of um, schools. Lauren, let's talk about the South DeKalb YMCA. It opened in 1976. I know that community relies on that YMCA. What has been the reason why you all are even having to look at changing what type of facility it would be? Is it due to low memberships, operating costs? What's the reason? Well, I think it's a lot of things, and I think it's a lot of unintended consequences. And I think what we're doing around launching this community needs assessment to really understand how we can restore this Y to a state of vibrancy is really critical. You mentioned when we opened up, the Y has been in Atlanta running programs and services for more than 160 years. I always say if we were running the same programs that we were 100 years ago or 50 years ago, and in some cases 20 years ago, we may not be relevant. And my job as the CEO, I really see myself as the chief stewardship officer. I feel a tremendous responsibility to ensure that this organization is positioned for success and for relevance as we look to the future. And so, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting. We have not built a full service YMCA as you would think of one since 2012. Uh, that was our Wade Walker YMCA, just about five miles away from the South DeKalb Y. Since then, we have been looking at various models and really trying to understand what do communities need, A, what role can we play that we're uniquely qualified to play, and how can it be a fiscally sustainable model? So a couple examples. In this past fall in 2020, in partnership with Morehouse School of Medicine, we opened up an express YMCA that has a wellness, smaller wellness area, studio space, it's there for the students and the faculty, but it's also open to the community. We opened up a model early learning center in the Grove Park community in early February of this year. And we're doing that really because there was a real lack of early learning in the community. And we know that's a critical need. So I say that to say that I think there's probably um, the thought process that all wise look the same. And the reality is they don't. Um, some wise are early learning centers, some wise are youth and teen centers, some wise are membership and wellness facilities. They all are going to, can, we're going to look at all of our whys continually and ask ourselves, are we meeting community needs? Are we having the reach and impact that we need to have? And is it moving at least fiscally? Not all wise need to you know, make money. That's, we're a nonprofit. Many of our wise do not. But are we moving in the right direction from a fiscal standpoint? So, well, and What about the upkeep? of the facility? How would you assess that? And what is the shape of the facility overall? Is it an in needs repair or needs some? It's not in need of repair, but it is in need of investment. And I think, you know, we want to invest in this why. And I think that's why this community needs assessment is so critical because we want to understand what will the best investment be to meet the community's needs. Has the community changed 
in terms of who uses the why? Does that factor in all this as well? Have well, the needs of the community, has that changed at all? I, yes, the, the community has changed. Um, you know, I don't want to paint with broad brushstrokes, but you know, our family membership over the last 10 years has gone down by 30%. Mm -hmm. Our um, adult membership has gone down by 40%. And so when you start to see those, you really begin to ask yourself, okay, wait, you know, is this just happening on a one or two year kind of blip? But when you start to lay it out and we looked at these numbers from 2013 to 2019, that's really when we started talking about this was even pre-pandemic. Why are we seeing the declines in membership? Why are we seeing the declines in after school? Why are we seeing the declines in youth programming like basketball and soccer? But we really needed to circle back and ask these questions and they're hard questions. And, and I know people are emotional and I get that. Before we get to the community assessment, what is the yearly operating cost for this location, Lauren? Some wise are going to make money and some wise are not. And we don't judge a why based on if it makes money or not. We judge it based on its impact and its reach. And so it's not necessarily a problem for us to plan for a why not um, being, you know, break even or self-sustaining. But what is alarming is when you begin to see um, those numbers increase. So in 2013, we had a small deficit of $13,000. That's, that's a non-event. By 2019, the deficit had grown to $765,000 in that year. So over the course of 2013 to 2019. How does that happen? I, you know, I think that's a great, I think, and I want to be really clear. None of this is on the South Dakota community and none of this is on the volunteers and the members. I mean, we need to look ourselves squarely in the face and say, do we have the right leadership in place? Are we investing in the why? Do we understand what the community needs? You know, what are the unintended consequences, quite frankly, of opening up a Y five miles away? What are the consequences of a fantastic parks and rec system in DeKalb County that has great offerings that offer many of the same things? Churches offering youth sports leagues. I mean, it's a competitive market and a lot of the things that we do. And, you know, I'm not sure if our programs got stale. Were we not offering the best thing? And so that's really what this is all about. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Lauren Kuntz. She's the president and CEO of the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. And our conversation today is about the South DeKalb Family YMCA, which has stirred up a lot of emotions from longtime members, board members, county commissioners, even sparked a protest. Many fearing the facility's temporary closure signals a permanent closure coming soon. This YMCA first opened its doors back in 1976. And so with this assessment, Lauren, that will be conducted under what guidelines, how will this happen? What's on this assessment? Yeah, so we um, put out an RFP back in late March and all the, we made it clear that we were going to only be looking to hire a minority firm that had ties to DeKalb County. We felt it was very critical to have a firm that understands the community, has done work in the community. And so we got four really strong proposals. We ended up selecting one that we are very excited about. And so right now we're in the phase where they're asking for a lot of information. You know, they're asking for financials, they're asking for program numbers. They're um, looking at, you know, all the kind of quantitative data the demographics of the area. We are matching them with all of our information we've pulled from the Atlanta Regional Commission. So we're getting them all the data that they need to really put together the right approach, which will include surveys, socially distanced forums. We're asking 
all of the local DeKalb County commissioners to help us get the word out so that people can be a part of it. We've gone ahead and set up a dedicated web page that people can go ahead and let us know that they want to be included in it. So that site is community need assessment at ymcaatlanta.org. Lauren, who or how will the decision be made then as to what kind of revised center facility the Softer Cab YMCA will then become? Because it is, based on what you're saying, it, it is apparent that there, the operational model will change. Well, you know, I think we have to do some soul searching. We have to look at the quantitative data. We have to look at the results that come back. We have to look at what's happening in the market. And I really think I'm bullish on South DeKalb. I think South DeKalb is growing. I think it's thriving. And I think we have an opportunity to really understand, well, wait, if we make an investment in this, why can we bring back membership? Can we reverse that trend of 30 to 40% membership loss? Can we reverse those trends around declining youth participation? Can we bring early learning on site there, which is one of the big things that we do, and quite frankly, one of the biggest needs that any community has? You know, much like our nation's libraries, they all had to reimagine and and reinvent themselves because of technology. Is that something that you all are looking at, that maybe there's some other services that the community may need that relates to a computer lab or, you know, a job center or something connected with the labor department? Are you all looking at all of those options as well? So we're looking at all of our programs. And one of the things that I made a commitment to our team, when I saw how quickly our organization could could pivot and be agile and respond to COVID and stand these programs around childcare and food distribution up, I really understood the power of how we need to constantly be asking ourselves what the community needs and how can we step in in those gaps. We're looking at all of our whys and asking the questions of how can we be a community anchor institution? What can we offer in this community that is needed, that is wanted, and and really lives up to the promise of building healthy mind, body, and spirit? So Lauren, after the assessment and all that, what is the next phase then for the SoftaCab YMCA? So when we hear back, we'll obviously work with our board of directors. Um, you know, I, I, we have a very strong board and there's a lot of oversight as it relates to fiscal and all the things that we do from an operating standpoint. We'll work with our board, our real estate and properties committee, our finance and audit committee, and we'll make some decisions and, and start to share those. But really, we're going to need to start to budget for a couple things. I mean, we need to budget for what Um, the coming year will look like, because obviously the programmatic costs, the staffing costs, those are not things you can just flip on a switch. We need to understand what we're going to program, how we're going to staff it, how we're going to fund it, especially if there's not going to be tremendous um, income coming in initially, right? We assume there would be a slower buildup period once we um, kind of open back up. Uh, The other thing is we have to look at the capital investment. I mean, we'll need to go out and raise capital dollars. We'll need to partner with the philanthropic community and we'll need to make the case for support that if they're willing to invest in this, why they're going to see the impact in the community. They're going to see the lives that we touch in great numbers. And so there's a lot of work to be done there as it relates to both just budgeting around the daily operation, which we will absorb and sustain, but also, you know, raising funds to invest in it. But I'm excited about that. Anytime you have the opportunity to go out and tell that story and get people excited, um, that's good news. And I think, 
not a lot of people have been talking about South DeKalb in a long time. We've talked a lot about the West Side. We're hearing a lot about South Atlanta. I think it's time to start talking about South DeKalb. I think there's a lot that can be done in that community. And I think they deserve the same spotlight. And I hope that we can be a catalyst with this community needs assessment, working with other partners in the community to make investments in the community that will really pay off for, for everyone. Well, Lauren, is it, but are you saying that in the meantime, the doors will be closed? Well, I think that's the misinformation. The doors have not been open for member programming since the pandemic. What we've done in that building has been completely focused on COVID response and relief. So we have been doing the food program. We were doing our child program. So Lauren, now with vaccinations, things are starting to open back up. You all can't offer any of the membership services you had been offering pre-pandemic? You all can't keep some of the member services open? I would say that, you know, the good news is, is that we have the Wade Walker YMCA five miles away. I know there's a fantastic intergenerational center uh, at Exchange Park, two and a half miles away. Um, I understand the frustration, but if you look at the economics of it, you know, in 2019, subsidizing that Y to the tune of $765,000, if we open back right now, we expect to see tremendous losses. And while that was maybe something we could absorb in the years prior, the pandemic hurt us. I'm not going to lie. I mean, we lost 40% of our membership revenue. We lost anywhere from 75% of our program revenue. You know, we had to take, you know, really tremendous steps around expense mitigation to address the deficit. So we're in good shape, but I can't, um, you know, I can't justify right now um, a $765,000 loss. What I do want to do is keep running programs that will meet especially the needs of the youth in the community while we determine how we can reopen and have a vibrant Y. Are there other YMCAs that are in the same position fiscally? There are not. Um, there are um, otherwise who um, are that run deficits that we've planned for, but we have not had a Y that has had increasing deficit loss to this degree over a eight year period like this. And at the same time, seeing the sharp drops in membership and programming. Lauren, what's your response to someone who says they understand about the, the fiscal challenges and the barriers, but given that this has been declining over years. And the question is, well, why wasn't something done sooner before we got to this point? And is it a case of the operation of the why, the personnel, perhaps there should have been a change made some years ago in that regard? How do you respond to those questions? Well, I, I think you're, I think they're absolutely right to ask those questions. I mean, I, I, I'm going to share with you, I came into the CEO role in July, 2019. And the first thing that I was asked to do by the board was to look at all of our branches and look at all of our programs and do an assessment of where we were. And so this has really become a top issue based on that work. Uh, and as I said, we would have started this pre-pandemic if we didn't have a pandemic because it became very clear when we started running the numbers that we did have a challenge. I'm never going to throw any staff leader in this organization under the bus. So I really am not gonna to speak to that aspect of it because you know what's in the past is in the past. Should we have changed out leadership? Perhaps, um, but you know this is an organization that we want our people to be successful. We try to help everyone be successful and, and create plans for that. So I think we find ourselves at a place where 
Certainly, there are, I think, missteps that occurred over the course of many years that I will completely own. But, you know, we can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. And so it's time to really look hard and to be serious about what we're going to do to revitalize this why. Might we see this new Softicab YMCA, however it's reimagined a year from now, if you and I are having this conversation, is it about, hey, we're opening, we have the ribbon cutting, we have this ribbon cutting ceremony for the new Softicab, however you wanna call it, could this happen within a year? I certainly know we'll be operating within a year. I think it really depends on what we need to do in terms of investment. I mean, you and I both know raising what I think will probably be millions of dollars is, is not an overnight thing. But I think there's a lot of people who are gonna get excited about this. Um, I think there are many um, companies and foundations and hopefully individuals in the community that wanna step alongside us and say, yes, we wanna invest in this why and, we, and we're willing to, to be with you and be your partner. Lauren Kuntz is the president and CEO of the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. And a programming note, we are going to talk to county commissioners, some community members, and board members who also wish to give their viewpoint to what should happen with the Soft to Cap YMCA. So we will have others on the program as well. Lauren, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for coming on and answering all the questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.